Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, March 6, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Carol Birkin, Cokie Roberts, Gil Troy, and Leslie Stahl discuss the enormous role women have played in the White House. So, women in the White House, we have been here before, but we've talked about only First Ladies. We're going to talk about other women as well as First Ladies, daughters, sisters, mothers, meaning mothers-in-law of the president. <laughs> um, this has to be one of my favorite ideas to talk about, subjects to talk about. So I hope we're going to have fun because I hope you've all come with great anecdotes. Um, I thought with this panel extraordinaire, uh, we should open with a round. And Carol will be our 18th century. Koki, to start off, will be 19th century. And Gil will be more contemporary, White Houses. So round one. How powerful and influential have first ladies been in your era, either outwardly or kind of surreptitiously, uh, kind of on the pillow, so to speak? <laughs> so we'll start with Carol, your okay. era. Picturing Martha Washington and George on the pillow is something <laughs> really I'm not ready for. <laughs> it depends on... The presidency wasn't that important during my period, really, as important as it becomes later. So I don't know how influential any of them would be, but I would say Dolly Madison is the one that most people recognize as uh, important, not just for her husband, uh, but important for the, the political and social life of, of, of the presidency, of, of Congress and, and, and the federal government. She was a really quite remarkable woman. J James Madison was an extremely boring man. <laughs> uh, little Jemmy Madison, as he little was Jimmy. called. And yeah. not, really, not really charming or outgoing. Uh, as I often say, it's a miracle to those of us who work in this field. We always ask one another, how could she have fallen in love with little <laughs> Jemmy Madison? And none of us ever have an answer. Uh, but she... But she did write on her wedding night, Dolly Madison, alas. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they, they grew fond of each other. I mean, mm -hmm. really fond of each other. She understood that she, creating a social cohesion among these people who came to uh, uh, the federal government who really often didn't know one another, came from areas... Uh, backwoods areas, in a sense, that it was difficult to make compromises. It was difficult to make plans uh, this, uh, in this circumstance. And so she would have these parties uh, and invite people on what we would call today the left, the right, the center, uh, Jeffersonians, Federalists, and she would bring them all together in a social setting. And she was quite a hostess, and she was quite fashionable and quite charming. And she would manage to make it possible for these men to come to some kind of agreement about policy. 
And so, in a sense... Uh, Where is she today? Right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but, but, there, but, but she was there for 50 years. I mean, she really yes. ruled Washington until the middle of the 19th century. She did not leave when, when, <laughs> when he, he finished his presidency. And she was a, a mentor to many of the women who came after her. She lived in really abject poverty. A lot of these women had good-for-nothing sons. Right. And she had a good-for-nothing son, not with James Madison, who had no children, but with her first husband. And, and she was accused of having unsexed him because she was so sexy. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he unsexed himself quite <laughs> on his own, on his own. Uh, and she, the son gambled away. It was horrible. Most of the money they had to sell Montpelier. And she was living in abject poverty in, in Washington, and Congress granted her a, a pension in order for her to... People oh, were bringing her food. But then his debtors would come and collect her pension. Pension, yes. All right, we're going to move to the next because we can't <laughs> let Dolly take over. So Koki wrote a book about the Civil War era. Were women more powerful finally in those days? Well, they were certainly influential. Um, and, I mean, they didn't own power. It's still a problem. But um, they were certainly influential, and they had absolutely no fear. Um, so the, their willingness to just march into the White House and tell off the president was just legion and fabulous. And uh, you were, In Koki's book about women in the Civil War, you have to read this. <laughs> what these women would do. Tell- they would just walk in and tell the president that he was wrong. And, um, and they were often right. I mean, um, women like us, you know, women off the streets, right? right? Well, well, they were often senators' wives or, um, or cabinet wives or whatever. They were part of Washington's social society. And there was this long period, you know, we were between uh, Jackson and Lincoln where presidents were turning over all the time, and so were first ladies. And even when there was a first lady, she was often um, not someone that really ruled Washington. I mean, Jane Pierce, poor thing. I mean, it was a shame. Her, her child died on the way to Washington. But uh, one of her contemporaries wrote about her uh, saying um, that uh, she was the woe-begone face with its sunken dark eyes and skin <laughs> like yellowed ivory banished all animation in others. So... <laughs> So she she didn't liven up the place, and um, <laughs> so these other women uh, really took over in some ways, the, as Dolly did when mm-hmm. Jefferson was president, right. and um, and they had great entertainments and all of that, and they vied with each other to be the the brightest belle of all, but um, but they did feel absolutely no compunction about telling the president what they thought, and what they thought was often very political. Um, so they had they had very strong views. I mean, the ones that the one that you you know that is most notable is Jessie Benton Fremont uh, coming to mm-hmm. make her husband's case to Abraham Lincoln, and Lincoln had had it with Fremont by this time for good reason, and um, and he didn't much like her either, and uh, and she had been very powerful when Fremont as the first Republican running for president in 1856, all of the 
all of the icon iconography was Jesse and, and Fremont. And, you know, we'll elect Jesse and Fremont too. Nobody knows who the <laughs> vice president was. And, um, and so she was a personage, very much so, and Lincoln didn't want anything to do with her. And she just, you know, insisted on showing up. She didn't win. Um, but but then other people would too. Sojourner Truth went to see him, and you know they had a quite remarkable conversation. And um, but it was the the women would just march on in and tell the president what oh. they were thinking, and the presidents all put up with it. So Gil, <laughs> a woman wouldn't dare do that today. Just march into <laughs> the Oval Office, bayoneted. But have first lady. <laughs> become more powerful in the 20, 21st centuries? There's pillow talk. There's sometimes pillow fights. Uh, <laughs> in fact, there was a famous moment when Gerald Ford threw a pillow at Betty Ford after the infamous 60 Minutes interview where she said that she could contemplate her daughter having an affair. Um, and smoke marijuana. Right. right. And, uh, but, look, what we forget is that while women have indeed been able to assert power in the White House, there are these invisible tripwires and any time they cross them, you see a whole wave of quite sexist attacks. Mm-hmm. Lady Macbeth, witches. Uh, you take someone like Hillary Clinton and Nancy Reagan. I can't think of two different women, and, but the attacks on them were quite similar. Mm-hmm. And so we sometimes look at first ladies as being caught in this box. And I actually want to think about uh, Florence Harding. Mm-hmm. Go back to the 1920s. We Here was her. the flapper first lady. First first lady to fly in an airplane. First first lady to vote. First First Lady, Jackie Kennedy style, to host celebrities at the White House, uh, movie stars at the White House, Al Jolson, Mary Pickford. And she, she said... We should have to worry what he'd do with them. Well, right? <laughs> she, she said, my hobby is the president. And when they got to the White House, she said, Warren, I got you here. Now what are you going to do with it? And yes, indeed, he had not only roving eye, but um, <laughs> wandering hands. He, he didn't think that the walk-in closets of the White House were just for walking. Right. And uh, <laughs> she did indeed once yell at him. She said... Warren, it took you longer to say goodbye to these 12 waitresses than it took you to say hello to these 3,000 people you <laughs> greeted on the trail. Uh, and, and nevertheless, though, she was an important force in the White House. And one now, of the cartoons at the time was the president and Mr. Harding. Right. Uh, so that's it. So then now you start seeing the backlash. Right? And she also, she had Harding Blue. She identified herself. In, she was a very clever, what we would call her now a marketer. We, you know, she understood how to make her mark felt. Well, as bad as some of the, what people said during the White House years, it was even worse after he died. First of all, they accuse her of poisoning him. He dies suddenly, uh, probably from bad medical advice. Uh, and they say, oh, she must have poisoned him. They're very angry because she did indeed burn some of the letters. They say, oh, she must be part of this vast cover-up. Of course, at the time, there was this growing whiff of corruption around the White House. Never happened again, but there was a <laughs> of corruption in the Teapot Dome. But worse, the... Lawrence Harding that I learned about in graduate school, when I read books by, uh, about the shadow of Blooming Grove, was a woman who was sexless, a woman who, had, who was as withered as an autumn leaf and just as brittle, I'm quoting, a woman who was a harridan, a woman who if she'd only been more buxom, 
<laughs> might have satisfied Warren Harding and he wouldn't have had the misery of going to the White House because he would have uh, stayed in Marion, Ohio. Uh, and, and I'm sorry to bring these to the fore, but it's important for us to understand what it was like. And I'm not talking about just the 1920s. These are books from the 1950s and the 1960s. And so when we see the way that conversation has changed, it's really quite remarkable. Is it that the, that the public turns against a first lady when she asserts herself or just they, they're get, they get attacked just because they're there? I, I think the usually it's when she asserts herself. It's usually, because look, let's be honest, one of the problems is it's an unelected position. One of the problems is we're in the United States of America, which has its ambivalences about power, right? We, have, we, we still haven't worked out some issues back to, from the American Revolution. And you have this person, and it's not just a person, it's a woman. It's not just a woman, but it's a spouse. You can't fire her, although we saw that Hillary Clinton was essentially fired after health care. Uh, you, can, you, you have to deal with her, and it then triggers also, so not only triggers the kind of concerns that, let's say, a John Sununu uh, triggered about somebody close to power, too close to power, but it also has that whole other element of sexism. Nobody and, elected her, and she can't be fired. Right. And, yeah. And, yeah. and she has Who tremendous her, And she is, uh, it, she's uppity. It, it she goes even herself. further back because Sarah Polk, right. Alexander yeah. Dallas, who was vice president, was so furious at her influence and power uh, that he attacked her uh, and said, in effect, she is the president. She was close. Uh, We know who's wearing wearing the pants in this family. Uh, And and in large part because he couldn't uh, form a wedge between these Husband and right. wife. Right. And so, so that is a problem. Right. And, and nerves advisors, too. Right? Yeah. Because they're there. Yeah. You know, right. Oh, yeah. So always. They, they, right. they, yeah. don't, they don't yeah. want her. Staff hates exactly. wives. Right. Exactly. Staff hates wives. Every, well, well as, as, the closer <laughs> you get to the king, <laughs> right. the more the jealousies and so forth. Right. But let's talk about some of the other women who have been close to presidents. Koki, you were telling me about President Buchanan's niece. She was the first person to actually be called first lady. Harriet Lane, and she um, she was an orphan, and at age 11, she asked to come live with him. He was a bachelor and probably gay. Mm-hmm. Um, his correspondence with the gentleman in question has been destroyed. From Alabama, yeah. <laughs> My <laughs> home state. Did, but, um, did some, people gossip about it? Yes, him people did yeah. gossip about it, yeah. but he... Um, uh, she went to boarding school in Washington and, and would spend, you know, Sundays with him. So she grew up in politics. And then when he was appointed to the court of St. James, she went over and Queen Victoria loved her and made her an honorary ambassadress. And uh, by this time, she's old enough to marry. Of course, she married in your teens. But she... Uh, and. One of her friends wrote to her and said, you better get married over there because you're really ambitious and the pickings here aren't so great. But, um, <laughs> but she didn't do that. She came home and she did serve as, as the hostess for the White House in this terrible time. This is the years immediately before the Civil War. Buchanan's a disaster. Um, Abigail Brooks Adams, uh, him, uh, John Francis Adams' wife, wrote about him. You know, the president is a silly old toad. And... Um, and so she was trying to put people together and make it work. And she wasn't terribly well-liked uh, because she was quite formal. But she was uh, somewhat admired. I've, I was looking today, the one of her, again, her contemporaries, uh, who didn't particularly like her. She thought she lacked magnetism. Uh, but she said, and this is, this is striking 
think, thinking in today's terms. She made no enemies. She was betrayed into no entangling alliances and was involved in no contretemps of any t- kind. So she, she stayed out of the fray, you know, which was she hard. Was now, Carol, you yes. were telling me about <laughs> Grover Cleveland's sister. Yes. I, I think she was one of the great characters of the 19th century White House world. He was not married in his right. first term. And so he brought his sister Rose, who in those days would have been called a blue stocking, right? She was an intellectual. She wrote books. She gave lectures. And he brought her in to be the surrogate first lady. And she really hated the whole Washington (laughs) crowd. She wrote that when she was in the receiving line shaking hands, she was so bored that she conjugated Greek and Latin verbs (laughs) in her mind and did math problems to make sure that she could stay awake. Well, second term, he married. And so Rose went off back up to upstate New York, and she continued to write and lecture. And she bought herself a little bungalow in Florida. And there in Florida, she met the woman who she fell madly in love with. And they lived somewhat together in Florida, until her, her lover decided it was time to get respectable. And so she found the most respectable husband she could imagine, a very elderly Episcopal bishop, <laughs> and she married. The man died. How handy. The lover came running back <laughs> to Rose, and they decided that they could not live in America uh, openly, and so they off to Italy, where they lived together, and they are buried in an Italian cemetery there. And wasn't she was not heard of again. Whoa, <laughs> I love it. Okay, Gil, you talked to me or wrote to me about Nixon's da- daughters during Watergate, which we all remember. So Julie Nixon Eisenhower writes in 1968 during the presidential campaign, There's nothing more shattering than being told your dad stinks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we forget. We forget the cost that these kids pay. Mm -hmm. Right. Right? And and she was the feistiest. She was the one who, in 1960, when John Kennedy beat Richard Nixon, probably because of the corpses that voted in uh, Texas (laughs) and Illinois, uh, gave her Christmas money to push for a recount that year. (laughs) <laughs> and Richard Nixon, in an act of patriotism, if I can say Nixon <laughs> in the same sentence, said, no, we're not going to have a recount. It wouldn't be good for the nation. And they moved on. And now we're during the Watergate period. Can you send Trump a memo? What, <laughs> 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 <But> patriotism? <laughs> yeah. no, no recount. Right. So now we're in the Watergate period. Pat Nixon, who the multiple, multiple traumatized first lady, has withdrawn. And Julie Nixon Eisenhower steps up mm-hmm. and really becomes her father's most ardent defender. Mm-hmm. And the late Nora Ephron writes an essay called The Littlest Nixon. And if you read it, especially with an eye toward Ivanka, there are things that really uh, touch. She says, um, Julie Nixon Eisenhower's loyalty is like the essence of daughterhood. She's perhaps the only woman over 20 in America 
who still looks at her dad through the eyes she had when she was six. Wow. And she can see him doing no wrong. People say, reporters say, she's the only one with any credibility in the White House. It's not that we actually believe her, but we believe that she believes what she says. <laughs> and Nora Ephron also raises the question, she says, what's going on in a marriage where the daughter is more supportive and the daughter has more intimacy with the dad than the husband and wife do? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she's the one who fights for him not to resign, uh, but in the, indeed he, he ends up resigning. And, uh, and then she writes a book about her mother, uh, an autobiography of her, you know, a biography of her, of her mother, and, and she tries to bring Pat back into the public uh, sphere in a way that, that humanizes Pat and humanizes Nixon. But, you know, they would always try to humanize Nixon and it wouldn't work. So one of the yeah. favorite stories <laughs> in the 1950s was, oh, yeah, he was a great dad. Once, on a Saturday afternoon, we had a picnic at his Senate office. <laughs> uh, and, and, and during the White House days, Julie says, yeah, no, no, he's, 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 he's really quite the prankster. Uh, he likes to light those birthday candles that don't, that don't blow out and just watch her and go, <laughs> And that was Richard Nixon at his most charming. <laughs> you know, Russell Baker wrote about presidents who have daughters and dogs versus presidents who have sons and cats. <laughs> You know, presidents with daughters and dogs just expect to be loved. (laughs) You know, it must have been hard. I was thinking about wives who lived through Hmm. their husbands. I mean, poor Abigail Adams. Her her husband was called every name in the book. He was insulted for his looks. He was insulted for the way he spoke. He was uh, the Republican press was so terrible, and she had to endure this circumstance and all of the. A lot Life. of the first ladies. But it, but it yes. put her yeah. in a position where she gave him, I mean, before he was president, she gave him very good political advice, right? Yes, mm-hmm. she did. But then when he was president, because of all that, I think, she was such a supporter of the Alien and Sedition Acts, and she kept talking about the scurrility of the press, which is a word we must bring back. Yes. Yes. But, um, yes. The um, beginnings of fake but it news. Was, it was such bad advice and, and went a long way to defeating him. Yeah. A good reminder, by the way, that the internet didn't create partisanship right. and didn't create <laughs> right, ugliness right, right. and didn't create all these right. dirty words. I mean, go right. back and write it. Oh, was, what was me? She was <laughs> referred to as the uh, presidentess of a party, not of the next. Presidentess? Mm-hmm. Yes. They called her them Mrs. President, or which is dreadful. <laughs> pre- but I loved her famous last line when he was not reelected. Abigail says, if I did not rise with dignity, I can at least fall with ease. <laughs> I mean, that's, worth, that's worth something. All right, so I brought an anecdote about someone who lived in the White House uh, who wasn't First Lady, and that was Mamie Eisenhower's mother. Mm-hmm. And the story I always heard was that uh, Mamie had her own bedroom, which she decorated herself, pink, all pink, <laughs> top to bottom, and very flouncy with very uh, thin fabrics. And every morning, someone would bring a breakfast tray in, and she would sit up in her bed, eating breakfast, talking on the phone to her mother, who was two doors down the hall. <laughs> but not dressed. And I heard this great story, and I happened to meet David Eisenhower just two weeks ago, and I said, now, is that true? He said, absolutely. <laughs> so it's great. I wanted to have you examine um, how the role has changed, how circumstances for First Ladies have changed, and, Carol, 
you and I, do you remember what we talked about? Yes. Yeah. You start us off. One thing that has a strong effect is technology and photography. Once there is photography, first ladies' faces become known in the entire nation, whereas they really had not been known nationally before. And the faces of these women appear in campaign literature and banners. And the second thing that connects to the, the rising national eye on these women is marketing with the consumer revolution in full swing and marketing going on and Sears catalogs and they, the marketers were very clever and they began to invent endorsements of their products. You know, uh, uh, President uh, Taft's wife believes, or the, the President uh, Harding's wife believes, so much so, the one that strikes me most is that Grover Cleveland's wife had a daughter named Ruth. Mm, and when Ruth. you open up that chocolate candy bar, <laughs> baby Ruth, that is who it was named after. Oh and so these two things, I think more than, than people ever realize, made women who were first ladies who before that were known in Washington and in a small circle of politically savvy people, but were really not national figures, became national figures. But that endorsement stuff started very early. I mean, we have the letters. You've seen them, Carol, with um, Dolly, certainly, people writing to her, asking her to endorse sure, their, yes. their products or their, um, their books or whatever. But the reach of it and right. the amount of it just really increases after the Civil War. Can you think of things that have changed in the big picture? So I think it's, I'm always more of the, that it's more like than change, because I I do think that uh, we have this incorrect image of First ladies sitting back in the, you know, parlor pouring tea uh, up until Eleanor Roosevelt, and that's just not true. true. And and we've, we've all written about it, and they were... Um, not only influential, but they were out there and they had views. They had political views and they wrote about it and talked about them. And, and From the White House? Yes, to their friends. If they had disagreed um, with their husbands? They, there were times when they would disagree with their husbands, but they didn't go out and tell the press that, except right. Mary Lincoln. Right. Uh, but, the, um, but they certainly told their sisters, you know, and, um, and they also bring a sensibility to the history that you don't have otherwise. You get to know the men much better through them. They're much more human. Um, but then, right. for, again, back to Dolly, because she was so remarkable. I mean, she writes about the French ambassador beating his wife. You know, the men wouldn't care about that. And, um, and so she's, you know, she's I horrified. I think that's really true also the way in which you understand the history of a period when I was writing about Verena Hal Davis. Who would know uh, some of the personal things she would tell? Seward, who was, of course, an enemy of Jefferson Davis's, had, when she was pregnant, provided a sled for her to be taken uh, uh, through the snow to the doctor. And so she wrote 
about the kindness of his heart, which I can assure you, no biographer of Stuart ever. <laughs> but then the flip side, she also wrote, and this is both Carol's and my one of our favorites, because we love Verena Davis and we hate Jefferson Davis. You are right. So, um, but um, she, um, she wrote to her mother, she was furious because Adele Cutts, who was uh, Dolly Madison's great niece and was loved by everybody in Washington. She was smart, she was beautiful, she was kind. Um, and um, she was poor. And she ended up marrying Stephen Douglas and Verena Davis, and this is why women's letters are just so much better than men's letters. Right. Um, she wrote to her mother and said, um, she was furious, you know, he's getting a, a, a woman because uh, her father is proud and she is poor and he's a drunk and he's using his first life's, wife's money. And she then says... It's a good thing we have brought a new water system to Washington. So perhaps he may wash, wash a little more oftener. Often. Right. Because, right. And if right. he don't, his acquaintances will have to build bigger rooms with more perfect ventilation. <laughs> so you don't know from men that Stephen Douglas Exactly. But, exactly. Um, but you do know, you know exactly. There's this theory, this political theory, <laughs> that if a man has his wife or a woman next to him, he, he won't be attacked as harshly. It's true. It's true. So that's one of the reasons that you, these men, these men in power, and this goes for CEOs as well. They always want to have a woman next to them because it apparently discourages people from really, you know. <laughs> or, or, they, or they serve as lightning rods. Nancy Reagan, lightning rod. Hillary Clinton, lightning rod. Not in they person. Don't Not in person. Right. Not, Not in person. Not in person. Right. Well, you talk about, Gil, about some of the things that you think, because you've gone back and looked and you, you can compare. Do you think that things have generally changed for First Ladies? Look, ours is a nation forged in a revolution against the king. <laughs> and there was a very strong ethos in the late uh, 18th and the 19th century that you shouldn't aggrandize the presidency. And today we live in a world where the president works in the Oval Office, Office and right. flies on Air Force One, right. and he has this thing called the First Lady. And of course, the First Lady, Jackie Kennedy said, it makes me sound like a saddle horse. It's a name that, that developed from a, from a play, The First Lady of the Land. And, um, and, and so there has been, I think, in many ways, a change. We do live in the age of, this, of celebrity. We do live in an age where also Congress used to be so much more important. And now we focus on the president as the right. sun and the moon and the stars of the American political system. And so I agree with you that we you know, nerdy historians and journalists love to find the stories of the pre-Eleanor Roosevelt period. But also Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt were major game changers. Mm -hmm. And so pity poor Bess Truman, who comes in to the White House... After Harry, uh, after Franklin Roosevelt dies, and Harry Truman is, you know, <laughs> was, was put there in order to keep Franklin Roosevelt alive, uh, because no one could imagine him as president. president. And at one point during VJ uh, Day, uh, Victory of Japan Day, and you know, everybody says, "President Truman, president forever." And Bess goes, "God forbid." Uh, <laughs> and she, she did say, she said, "Nobody's been in this position since Elizabeth Monroe." coming in after Dolly Madison. Right. Her to come in after Eleanor right. Roosevelt. Right. And, and the pressure on her to take a stand, the pressure on her to be public. Uh, and, and then, of course, she goes back. To, she just wants to go, back, go home, home to Missouri, uh, where she still sends right. out her laundry um, in Independence. And, uh, and she walks around one summer, and they say, oh, imagine the president's wife dressed in seersucker. And she was a tough lady. She turns and goes, and what's wrong with that? Can I be a regular person? <laughs> And the answer was no. And Harry Truman called it the great white jail 
or the Great White Fishbowl. And uh, yeah. he loved being there, but she was ready to... Well, he wore Hawaiian shirts, for heaven's no. sakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk about the sense that, of imprisonment that right. both the First Lady and the President get. But first, I want to ask, I guess, Gil or any of us, I, it strikes me that First Ladies are meant think they're supposed to be glamorous, Hmm. think they're supposed to all look like Jackie Kennedy and dress the way she does. And yet, in my lifetime, the most beloved first lady was Barbara Bush, and she deliberately dressed frumpily. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I wonder if the first ladies have it wrong in terms of the public's affection. Well, you see yourself, I mean, it must be, you're seeing yourself in pictures all the time. And, uh, you know, on television and in the newspapers and in glossy magazines. And you sort of looking and saying, it would be a help if I lost 10 pounds. You know, I mean, it's pretty natural. Well, but you'd early, also you early. also know that pot shots are taken if a hair right. is out of place. Right. Hillary and the haircuts. And the- yeah. Right. But early uh, wives were criticized if they were too fashionable. Right. Uh, their clothes and criticized oh, if they wore makeup. Two of uh, both Adam's wife and Monroe's wife had been in France and they came back in French fashions and they had, it was rumored, rouge on their cheeks. <laughs> and people were really very critical of their fashion plate behavior. So it it changed. It has changed. That's one Martha, thing that has really Martha changed. Washington understood. And I mean, think about her. She had to create this role, right. right? And she had two little kids she was taking care of. She had these grandchildren who were unruly, and um, and she um, she wore when she arrived in New York, which was the capital. Um, she wore homespun. <laughs> she loved silk. And she loved fine things, but she had a PR sense. Got it, yeah. And she mm-hmm. wore homespun when she arrived in New York. And, and look at the attacks on Nancy Reagan with oh, the dresses. Oh, my God. Right, and the, and, the, and the designer dresses and the whole push against her. I think there's a kind of yeah, balance. Yeah, but she took those, you know. There was right. a huge yeah. controversy, yeah, yeah. so. Right. Uh, the, the, but there's a balance that you have to strike. And look at Michelle Obama. By the way, I started reading her memoir. Wonderful. Yeah, it is. Thoughtful, well done. Uh, and, Until it gets and, to and, and 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 what was her problem? She she didn't want to be too glamorous, right? So she would often she would often boast when she would wear a dress from where was it Kmart or JC JC Penny or J. Crew. J. Crew. This is not my area oh, of expertise. But she, made <laughs> but she also had thunder and lightning. Her two you know her left her left arm and her right arm as Maureen Dowd talked about it. And she was very proud of being able to handle the celebrities and being out there. So she was kind of dancing on the head of a pin, and, as many women are forced to do trying to be fashionable, trying to be with it, but also trying to show that she was just a mom. And, and she made the careers of many designers. Right. If, if Michelle yeah. Obama wore someone's right. outfit, their, their career was yeah. made. But, you know, we, we also impose um, our own uh, impression on people, whether it's correct or not. And uh, the person I saw this most clearly with was Laura Bush. Now, Laura Bush was out there. Laura Bush, right now today, is working for the women of Afghanistan because of this, you know, bad arrangement that's getting done. Uh, but she is the only first lady 
who went to the briefing room, you know, the press room, took the microphone and used it to call for the overthrow of the colonels in Burma. And nobody thinks about that with her. They think of her as this kind of nice librarian. Yeah. And um, and I, it, it's such an incorrect image. But I think it's because you know some of it is partisan. Uh, that you know people don't didn't think of a Republican woman as being so outspoken and so um, you know really on a human rights case like that. Um, but some of it is just some. Some image we put together in our heads before before they ever become first lady, and it's hard to ever for them to ever get rid of it. Carol, when I said, "Do you remember what we talked about before?" <laughs> it wasn't photography. <laughs> we talked about depression. Yes. When first ladies are depressed, and you told me something about why that used to be more common. People don't real. my students, I will say, <laughs> think that people in the past were just like people are today, but they had funny hairdos. <laughs> and I spend an enormous amount of time <laughs> telling them that really lo- the conditions of life are different. And you think about the 18th and 19th century before uh, miracle drugs. Every single one of these women, except Sarah Polk, whose husband was sterile, and so she was spared the experience. It's just a catalog of infants who died, five-year-old children who died, 12-year-old children who died. There's virtually none of them that I can think of. And poor Verena Hal Davis, who was the first lady of the Confederacy, had a son who fell off the balcony of the... I mean, there were all kinds of nine. deaths. There were miscarriages. There were diseases. I think it's uh, uh, Adam's wife or Monroe's wife whose child died. No, it's Dolly's. has a son who dies of yellow, yellow fever. fever. Right. And so these are women who are living with this constant shadow of death over them. And to say then suddenly they were depressed, uh, of course they were. And, and the ones who didn't have children who died had children who turned out really badly, <laughs> who, were, who were drunkards, who were drug addicts, who were uh, 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 engaged in visiting prostitutes on a regular basis who got the maid in the White House pregnant. I mean... Who was that? It was very very hard for, I think, to be the child. When you were talking about the, uh, uh, the child of the president, it's not just that they stood up for their parents. It's very difficult to be the child of someone... Of that enormous guy, uh, yeah. You, you mentioned Barbara Bush. Uh, I, I think she struggled with depression when uh, George H. W. Bush went off to China, and uh, and that was part of the the whole thing there. And she also obviously had lost a child, uh, Robin, to leukemia. Her hair was gray, his wasn't, and they talked <laughs> about him going around with his mother and how cruel people were about her uh, on television. Some of your colleagues, I'm sorry to say, um, not you. <laughs> well, uh, and Gail Sheehy, Gail Sheehy wrote an article about. Barbara's hair, saying that she used to dye it, mm-hmm. and then I guess Gail speculated that she found out there might have been another woman, and that's when Barbara let her hair go gray. Mm-hmm. But apparently, that's not true. It's not true. <laughs> I should I shouldn't be up on this stage quoting. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Hillary, Hillary, Hillary Clinton in the 92 campaign raised accusations of alleged ma- uh, extramarital affair of, of George H.W. Bush. She raised it? Yes. Wow. That's not yeah. my sanction. I would like to know Before me too. which of the first ladies each one of you admire the most. In, it doesn't have to be in your era either. And if, you're, if you need to think, I'll jump in. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, I covered Washington for 20 years, so I saw a lot of first ladies. Um, And this is going to be a surprise, I think. But the one that I observed who I ended up admiring the most was Nancy Reagan. And the reason was that she, in my view, grew the most. She learned the most. She changed the most. Um... Honestly, there's no, you can't tell me I'm wrong because nobody actually knows, but I believe that she ended up being friends with Maureen Reagan. They had been totally estranged through Maureen's entire childhood because it was her stepdaughter. Um, But they became friends after Reagan was shot, and she made Nancy Reagan a feminist. Mm -hmm. And then people... We all know that the president ended up having Alzheimer's, but he began failing in the White House. And she propped him up and basically hid it from the public and everybody else she could hide it from. So she kept things together for the country. I'll see you and raise you uh, Lady Bird Johnson. Well, that's what mm. that's talk, what I talk, talk about a woman who grew. Yeah. Talk about a woman who had a, a tough husband who spent a lot of time tearing her down and, 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 and smooshing her with, her with his thumb. And she, especially in the White House years, comes, first of all, is very strong as an advisor to him, but also uh, leads in what we now call environmentalism, but uh, she had to call it beautification. A word she hated. And, uh, and, and she uh, was really quite a formidable woman. I know we don't have a lot of time, so I can't go into detail, but I, I, I have tremendous uh, admiration for her. Hmm. I have to really go with Verena Hal Davis. But she wasn't first lady. She was. She was first lady of the, the Confederacy. Confederacy. Some where country. I come from, that counts for something. You lost. Uh, we we did lose, and we my we. folks are from New York and Connecticut. I'm an imposter. I she had such a nasty husband. She did such a demeaning, such a, a destructive husband. And she remained loyal to him. She was much better politician than he was. And the part that I like best is that after he died, she picked herself up. She and her daughter, Winnie, who was known as the first daughter of the Confederacy, picked themselves up and moved to New York City. And uh, Verena had a kind of salon where she invited all the people that Jefferson Davis hated. <laughs> Actors, <laughs> poets, writers, musicians. And I'm sure she just sat there thinking, I hope you're turning over in your every day that I have. And I thought it was quite extraordinary that she would... First of all, I cheered her on right. that she finally led a life that suited her interests and herself. But also, what a remarkable thing to have done. And she made friends with Ulysses Grant's widow. Julia Grant, the only person... It was page one story in every newspaper in the country. They met at West West Point accidentally 
They were both there at the same time. And bless her heart, Julia Dent Grant, who was the dumbest person I have <laughs> ever I like written her. about I like in her. my life. I did, too. <laughs> I did, too. But dumb. <laughs> she goes and she knocks on Verena's door and she says, I understand you are the widow of a president. So am I. And they sit wow. down and have tea <laughs> together. And when Grant's tomb was right. dedicated, the only person Julia personally invited was, was Verena Hal Davis. So when she was moving to New York, it was this huge scandal, right? The right. first lady of the Confederacy right. is going to evil New York City. Now, among other things, she needed to work. Uh, he didn't make any money or leave her any money. Right. And she had a job with the New York world. But she had never been considered quite fair-skinned enough to be a perfect Southern belle. And one of the Richmond papers referred to her as Tawny. (laughs) And um, so she wrote to her daughter when she was moving to New York and said, I'm free, brown, and 62. I can do whatever I want. (laughs) Okay. We have some great questions. So we're going to take some of the audience questions. Uh, I guess this goes to Gil. Would you consider Edith Wilson the first female president of the United States? <laughs> well, they did call her Mrs. President, and she definitely manipulated things when uh, Woodrow Wilson had a series of strokes. Uh, and, and she did the most important thing, which, and we actually haven't talked about this at all, controlling access. Mm-hmm. And that's also, you know, playing that role of traffic cop and playing that and, and, and protecting uh, him from, uh, from reporters and from uh, others was, was a critical role. So uh, you could say that in many ways she was the first female president. But at the end of the day, you have to have a woman elected president, and then we'll have the first right. female president. Right. Here, here. <laughs> And she has to win the popular and electoral vote. I think, but we'll I think, talk about that in the group therapy session. I think I know the answer to the next one. Uh, so we'll just throw it out there. Has any first lady ever been given security clearance? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, did uh, Hillary get security clearance? Who? Hillary. No. I don't she didn't. Think, she didn't touch it as, as when she became Secretary of State. I but, bet you rarely touched foreign policy. And right. I, would, I would have been surprised. I no. Okay. Um, <laughs> they probably should because they travel with their husbands and all these. Um, what I want to ask is around, and I'll start with Koki. What do we think about Melania? How do we think she's doing as First Lady? I actually think she's doing a good job. Um, I. I mean, think of Melania. You know, talk about somebody who was not prepared for this role. And, you know, Michelle Obama talked about it. She had never been the first lady of a state, which is a very helpful uh, mm-hmm. career right. path if you're going to be first lady of the country. And, uh, and Barack Obama had barely been in the Senate. And it was, you know, it was hard. It was a hard adjustment to that job. And, um, and here is someone who... No, had absolutely no expectation of being in this position. Didn't want this. And she, um, she is right now out dealing with, you know, trying to talk up things on opioid um, abuse. She is, um, I am a very involved and have been for years at the Children's Inn at NIH, which is a place where the families come and stay with their terribly sick children who are being treated at the National Institutes of Health. She's come twice to the children's inn and really gotten down on the ground and played with the kids and made things with them and, and you know, taking up the cause of, of uh, federal funding for science research, which 
we certainly want. And um, so I think she's trying really hard. And uh, I think she's much more comfortable when she's just out on her own and doing her own thing. Not very visible. No. Except when she smiles beautifully next to him. Don't you think a campaign, an anti-bullying campaign, suggests a lack of a (laughs) sense of irony? Or just the opposite. I I actually think it was the opposite. Because she referenced it. It's not like she pretended it wasn't the elephant in the room. So to speak. But, but, <laughs> but, but in the in, what about when she flicked him off? Right. Yes. They they, they claim that on Don't election night, when it became clear that he was going to win, she cried. Yeah, so, I heard that too. So you're not the only one. Although, <laughs> I bet on her wedding yeah. night too. Never. Oh. Never. <laughs> yeah, I bet on her wedding night too. <laughs> All right. Although a, in that book, Nest of Vipers, is that the latest one? You know, um, of the, he yeah. claimed, the, that guy claims that they got in the, he was in the elevator with them, and uh, when he was going out to make his acceptance speech, and she um, grabbed his hand and said, "We're going to do this together, and you're going to be a great president." <laughs> so there you go. Oh no, I think he. I think what ends up happening, and this may be true of all presidents. They end up feeling that there's no one else right. they can trust, right. because especially in modern times, the leaking is unbelievable. Now today, everybody's writing a book, right. and I'm sure that in the president's mind, they must always have to check what they're saying, whoever's in the room. But I thought he had Ivanka for that. Ivanka. Well, but what I'm not specifically talking about him, but I think he, I think they have. I don't want to talk about husband-wife relationship, but I think that they have a, a relationship where he trusts her and that they talk and she supports him. She props him up. But, you know, that's one of the hard things about the role itself, though, because you are the person, generally, you know, that the president trusts, and therefore you are the person who can tell him the truth. And it's a very dangerous role to play. Because he doesn't well, want to hear the truth all yeah, the time. Yeah, and, and he and, needs his wife to, to tell him he's wonderful at the same time. Right. So you have to be so careful about when you tell him the truth. You know, Gil, I met Gil at the Reagan Library. Uh, and he taught me how to go through a library, <laughs> the presidential library. Um, but I think you and I had a conversation about how, um, how marriages improve in the White House. Am I right? Yes. Really? Now, tell everybody that theory, because that's <laughs> wonderful. I, I wrote a book about presidential couples. Uh, that's when we <laughs> met. And, um, and, and what you see is that many of these men have spent their entire careers on the okay. circuit, on the stump, trying to get elected. And suddenly, now, they're living above the store, as they say. And because also they're, they're, they're thrust uh, and they're depending on one on another, that in many ways, the marriages which often had ruptures, uh, let's say, um, Mamie and Ike, uh, during many of the years that uh, Eisenhower was away fighting World War II mm-hmm. and who knows what went on with Kay Summersby. Uh, w- when they're in the White House, they rely on one another. So you actually see many of the marriages uh, improving and the, and, and the interconnectedness. Because they're also, who else is in that boat? Right. Who else is suffering like they are? When the, <laughs> when, and who else is celebrating as they are? And so there really is a kind of remarkable bond that, that emerges. And I actually think that's part of the reason why you don't see post-presidential divorces. Partially because there's a bonding, but partially also there's a certain sense of we now are playing to the bar of history. Huh. And I'm going to be really unhistorical, 
And so I always play in my mind, what would have happened if Al Gore had won the presidency? What would have happened between the Al and Tipper marriage? Would it survived because they were now playing to the bar of history as opposed to they, they were now shunted unceremoniously aside. Yeah, and look at the Clintons. Right. Ooh, who would have thought? I have a multiple... But they didn't want to give the critics... The, the Clintons didn't want to give the critics the satisfaction. Right. Satisfaction, that, uh, right. right. No, but I think they have a... They have the same kind of marriage where they really do rely on connect. Right. And they connect, right. They need each other. Okay, multiple part question. <laughs> what do you think we will see first uh, as president? A non-Christian, a woman, or someone openly gay? Let's go for all three. <laughs> in one. <laughs> in one. <laughs> a Jewish gay woman. Sure. <laughs> I think, what do you think, a woman? You know, it, it, it so depends on the year and the person. Um, I, I, I would guess a woman just because I'm not, but it could be easily be a Jewish woman. Um, who's um, running who's Jewish uh, right now? Who's thrown their hat in the ring? Bernie Sanders, but he's not a woman. <laughs> he looked great in a wig. Is Klobuchar Jewish? Who? No. No, no. no not yet. But who isn't running? I guess that's the question to ask. <laughs> no, that is the question. Okay. We did have a presidential ticket with Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney, which was the first non, the first uh, ticket with not without a, Protest- a Protestant, without a mainstream Protestant, right? A Catholic and a, and a right. Woman. So we've had them running. So we've had right through. Hillary and the, okay. Right. Um, could Democrats win? Women run. with two women on the presidential ticket. No. All right. <laughs> <laughs> How are we doing? We have two more minutes. <laughs> Women have led ancient empires and today lead nations around the globe. Why haven't we, that's such a great question, why haven't we had a woman president yet? Hillary won the popular vote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm... <laughs> I, I think part of it has to do with the essence of the presidency, right. which is the president is both king and prime minister. And, and that mix of being both head of government and head of state makes it all the more complex, makes it all the more singular, touchy when it comes to issues of sexism and gender and all that. And I'll, uh, I, I do understand the vote count, but I would also say Hillary Clinton was a terrible politician. And that's why we haven't had a, a woman president. Sorry, but they, um, I also think it's the difference between the parliamentary and the president. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking. You know, when you're, when you're elected prime minister, you're the head of your party and your party gets elected. Now those have become more individualized elections in recent years in places like Great Britain and France. But but still, you become the head of your party and then your party gets elected. That's an easier it's an easier hurdle to get through than it is to have this one person's there that everything is focused on. Who epitomizes the nation in a very complex way. Well and you have to win on television. You have to win by how you look and the quality of your voice, right. and there is sexism. It's just hardwired, right. I think. I right. do think it's hardwired. Yep. I, I wonder, have there been polls or surveys where people say what they expect in a first lady? Is, is there a, a composite number of characteristics that people want or expect? No, there's never been any I've polling never, on I it. Have no. I've seen over the years various polls that usually are about a particular first lady, and, and there really is a kind of set of contradictions 
you're supposed to, there's an aristocratic model that you're supposed to be living up to and a populist democratic model mm. you're supposed to be living up to. Yeah. There which, is a, a, which Martha Washington talked her, about. I mean, um, she wrote yes. about it. She yes. said, you know, I, she had to be, had to be elegant right. enough to have Europe take this funny little new country seriously. And she had these horrible levees, which must have been boring beyond belief. And, um, and she had to be Republican small r enough exactly. for the people who had just fought a revolution against the king to accept it. And she talked about how hard yes. this was. Yes. And it's only gotten harder. <laughs> no. You know, I was on this stage interviewing not about women, but about the, uh, the presidency. The, all of you will appreciate this. And, and the gentleman, the historian, said that the reason we're a democracy is because George Washington didn't have sons. his own son right. or any sons. Yeah. So there was nobody to leave the, the office right. to. And that was why we didn't become, uh, he didn't become king. I would say we're a democracy because George Washington was George Washington. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, certain, he, he wanted. He really had a sense of he not believed. not not turning the presidency right. into the kingship. Right. He, right. You know, but but it's well, a good line he, that the father he, of our country. Yeah. Was I, think he, no, he resigned. He resigned the, the command of the army when he didn't have to. He served two terms yeah. and stopped when he didn't have Stop. to. Right. He could have been president forever. Ever. Right. And uh, he had a very strong sense. He was very. In that period with the Articles of Confederation, he understood that this wasn't going to work. And he was very much a supporter of the Constitution. Yes. You know, we have been lucky from to, to have, for the most part, uh, in our history, and I hope we get lucky again, <laughs> to have presidents of honor mm-hmm. who loved the, the form of government and right. respected it and wanted to preserve it. Mm-hmm. And we have been lucky. <clears throat> I'm not going to say anything else because <laughs> I'm bundled up. <laughs>